So the scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for welcoming me um, to teach. I was uh, excited when I talked to um, Jonathan and Dave, and I would say as I begin, uh, you have great pastors, great leaders here. I have met godly, wise leaders, and I have met those that are not those things. And these guys are godly and wise, and so uh, I just appreciate their leadership and appreciate you inviting me here. Uh, I know you've been going through this letter, and so if you have a Bible, you can kind of stay there. But um, they asked me, do you want to do this and finish? And, and I love to do that in churches. And I read this text, and I said, man, I got I to gotta do that. And, and you'll learn why. Um, I, I will warn you on the front end, and I don't often do this. Uh, God's been bringing our family through a trial for the last 12 years with our son, and I'm on little sleep, and so I understand I can get emotional during preaching anyways. I especially get emotional when I talk about Josiah. I'm just going to warn you on the front end. So you're like, wow, that guy cries a lot, and I don't know if we want him back. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best. Uh, he is a dear, sweet child, and you'll learn more about him and how that really has changed our whole family uh, as a whole, but I, I want to, I, we, I was, I can't not like pray before, after we read, so I'm going to pray again for us, just a brief prayer as we come to God's word as Dave has read it, and I'll just pray for us, and then we will, um, we'll jump in. Father, uh, we praise you, I praise you for Disciples Church and the faithfulness of, uh, these guys, but, but really it's your faithfulness in bringing this gathering together, and so I pray that you would meet us here now with your presence, that your word would speak, that that is what transforms uh, us as you've revealed yourself to us ultimately in Jesus Christ, and that we would know him. And Father, if there's one here that doesn't know him, that they would know him this day and place their faith in him. If there are those of us who know him, that we would follow him more fully because of your great grace, and we pray all of these things in his precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Humble yourselves. That's the first part of the text that we read. Uh, I brought this can with me, not because there's a formula shortage, although there is a formula shortage, and we've experienced that firsthand. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about our, our story over the last 12 years. 
Um, Josiah is a 12-year-old sweet little boy who has a lot of medical complexity, a lot of limits. He can't communicate. He uh, can't move very well. His muscles are, are, are weak, and he uh, spends a lot of time in the hospitals in Madison. Even we were there uh, a couple weeks ago and even on Friday night just trying to figure out his new thing. He likes to keep us on our toes. Um, he is a, is a kid that, that is a medical mystery to the doctors. He um, is in the middle of, he had an infection, is in the middle of this insomnia bout where he can go 12 to 14 days with no sleep, just straight. And that's kind of what we're in the middle of. I was telling Jeremiah and Grace on the way here, I slept on the twin mattress in our living room, and I, and I thought to myself, why do we have this mattress? It is not comfortable. And it is not comfortable, um, but we, we do our best to navigate the challenges uh, that God has for us. And along those challenges, he, he requires a lot of care. And my wife and I, over the years, have kind of split up into our roles to uh, care for him. And my, I'm the milk guy. I'm the formula guy. So he eats continuously through a GJ tube, and that's my job every night. Uh, Carrie gets all his meds, and my job is to make sure he has food through the whole night. And, and, I, and I bring this to you as I come to this text because I have what I call milk can moments with God, just me and God. And see, I'm already, I'm already there. It's, it's bad. Um, right by our kitchen window, I get this can out of the cabinet every night. And of course, we have a stock of cans and I pull it out and I make his, his formula every night. And I, and I scoop this stuff into the big canister, add the water. And I have these moments where I come to this, this, this time, I come weary sometimes, I come sad, I come hurt, I come grieving, sometimes I come numb, sometimes I come joyful, sometimes I come happy, they're all different. And I recognize the monotony of that at times, and it's this moment where I, I look at God and, and I ask a bunch of questions like, God, why this, why this little boy? why the timing, what's your plan. I need all the reminders that you need about all of that. In my milk can moments, when I look at the subject of suffering, especially in a little boy that God created wonderfully, fearfully and wonderfully made, I I met with those questions of doubt, like, God, what are you doing? Carrie and I are getting older. Our kids are, are getting older. We've been changing diapers for now like 20 years. What does that look like in the next 20? And I just like move myself out there. And sometimes that's just crushing in those ways. But these are really moments of a gauge of my heart. And that's really what it's about. Where is my heart in these moments? Because the last 12 years with Josiah, at least, at least have been a journey of understanding suffering, suffering better. And understand the text, suffering comes in all kinds of ways. It comes in all kinds of trials. It comes in all kinds of persecutions. But that's really a gauge of my heart. Where am I at with God in terms of what he's brought into my life? I have four points this morning that I'll just move briefly through the text one at a time. I give those to our people when I give them out, so I'll just give these to you here. Uh, That we are to grow through suffering, and the one way is we're to do that by growing through suffering by humility. Second, to grow through suffering by resisting the devil. Third, grow through suffering by trusting God's sovereignty. And fourth, grow through suffering by standing in true grace. I'll capture these all again. As you've been uh, studying this book, you know that Peter addresses suffering in his letter. 
he starts by addressing it to the elect exiles, which is important to note, chosen ones of the dispersion. And here he has just taught in context of where we are about the elders, the need for godly men in the church, and the need for people to submit to godly men. And, and again, you're blessed to have that here in Disciples Church. And that especially young men submit, and he moves from there to humility. And he says, you need to wear it. Clothe yourselves in humility. Like, put it on and live there. Humble yourselves because God gives grace to the humble. And he opposes pride and the proud. And pride is an enemy of suffering. Our sinful pride is certainly an enemy of the topic of suffering. Because when, when I'm at the, at the window, I think to myself, I deserve better than this. God, why haven't you answered our prayers for healing the way that I want? And it's an enemy of suffering. That's why I have these moments that gauge my heart. And so Peter exhorts, and he starts there, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, what is that all about? That we would grow by humility, by placing ourselves under God's mighty hand. And what is God's hand but a reference to his sovereign rule and reign? God's hand in human history humbled Israel, Israel, purging out rebels and bringing his people to repentance. The God of the heavens has all power and authority. He rules and reigns, and this is key, as he chooses and pleases for his glory. But this God of power isn't to crush us under the weight of of our own suffering. That's not what it's about. Peter here speaks of his hand for another reason. He reminds us of God's power to lift up or exalt the humble. Jesus himself, another place in the scriptures, is exalted, mentioned there in Philippians, sitting at the right hand of the Father in God's good time, God does the same for Jesus' people, his disciples, his followers, that he will raise up, that will be able to share in his glory one day. And who would know better about this than Peter? He knew about humility and pride. His pride led him to deny Christ. Famous Peter, right? But what happened in the end? He learned by that. He was disciplined, chastened by it. And ultimately, Christ restores and builds the church upon him. And that is what our suffering is, by the way. It's discipline. It's a sanctifier a way to humble us that we may be trained by it. Those moments where I'm at the window, I can gauge whether my heart is like okay and on board with that or when it's not. Like do I welcome the chastening by God, the, the discipline that he has in that? And Peter knew well that Christ did not discard him in this weakness. He loved him and cared for him, which is why these next words come. Peter says, cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. That's the reason for the casting of the anxieties. The putting on our cares, our worries, our anxieties on Christ. Why? Because God cares for you. How many of you need to hear that today? God cares for you. He delights in his children. He doesn't pile on these hardships and trials because he's some like rude, mean, cosmic cop like waiting you to mess up or somehow punishing. He delights in us. He cares for us. And Peter says, give him those anxieties in that way. He isn't trying to make your life miserable by what he has brought in and ordained and to bear you under the weight of it. Peter relies on the promise of Psalm 55, 22 here. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. 
This is what I need to remember when I walk through trials, when our family walks through trials, and God has changed my heart to help be in ministry, to help those who are walking in, in trials as a pastor. You see, anxiety, and this is, this is what we need to know, anxiety or worry is a form of pride. How, many, how often do we think of that? You know, people, some people are prone to anxiety a little bit more than others, but how often do we think like anxiety is a form of pride? But it is. When we worry, we desire control. You know, we fail to trust that someone else has control. We think about all the bad possible outcomes that could come about, right? And if you're a warrior, you know that. You sit and you think of every single bad thing that can happen. And God has checked our hearts in Josiah's life because there's a lot of bad stuff that could happen. It's said that, maybe you've heard this, that worry is like a rocking chair, right? It's something to do, but it doesn't get you very far. And that's exactly what it is. And so Peter says, cast that on the Lord. When, when Josiah was born in 2010, and this is just like, as I reflect on this in the last 12 years, they've been long and hard. But I was a month away in the transition from starting my new role as lead pastor. He came a month early. The timing couldn't have been like stranger in that way. And yet God brought us to this place to say, you know what? I have a totally different plan than you had. I had all these visions and dreams of like, not like weird prophetic stuff, but like visions and dreams of like what what I would do in that role. And then God just says, I'm gonna give you a limiter in your life. I'm gonna give you something to humble you. And God knows my heart well because I like appraise him that he did it this way. In ministry especially, where, where pastors and leaders are prone to just their own self-glory. And he, he gives me this, and I never knew it was coming. It was the greatest form of God's humility that he could have ever given me to be more dependent on him. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us, if you read that chapter, tells us that discipline is for our good. In fact, he disciplines those he loves. And I've often joked about this. I've often told people, God loves me more than he loves anyone else. And we think about that in our trials. He must love our family more than anyone else, but it's true. But you have to remember God's doing something. This is Romans 8, 28 kind of stuff. I love this C.S. Lewis quote that he writes about this. He says, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to ruse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. In Christ, you and I are being perfected, sanctified through the most humiliating means at times. To grow through suffering is to grow by way of humility. And you see, humility isn't just something that happens overnight. It's a heart issue. And the heart has to be protected, which is why Peter continues in verses 8 and 9, to be watchful and sober-minded. Our heart is linked to our head, our thoughts. Peter says, your heart is going to feel. We get that, right? We're emotional creatures. Your heart is going to feel things. Feel things that aren't right. Feel things that aren't good. Feel things you wish were better. And he says, you can't operate on your feelings. That's not truth. You need to remember what God says, what to think about, like Philippians 4, 9, whatever, like is pure and excellent and worthy. Like think on these things, to set your mind on things above, as Colossians says, to keep a clear mind, knowing that the enemy is going to go after that. And he does it to me as I stand with this milk can, 
night after night. And that's the second point, that we grow through suffering by resisting the devil. Because life is not just about this tangible world that you and I touch. It's a spiritual battle. And Peter reminds us of this. And he uses this vivid imagery of a lion there in verse 8. He says, sober-minded, watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He reminds people, believers, what is happening. Now, they would have understood this imagery in the Roman amphitheater as they watched lions come out and just devour men for game, right? They would have understood this imagery of dripping blood. It would have made sense to them. He said, it's just like that. This enemy wants to like double down on all that God's brought into you and he wants to rip your faith apart. He wants to destroy you. He wants to cause wonder and doubt at the window with that milk can. He wants you to doubt God's goodness and love. He wants you to grow angry. He wants you to grow bitter and you need to resist. I have communicated this to our people time and time again. I've always said there's two kinds of people in the world, and there's two responses, rather. You can either be angry and bitter and have no control in your life, or you can be joyful and happy in God and have no control in your life. Like, those are our two responses to trials and suffering. And all these commands Peter gives us in this short little passage, he says, humble yourself, That's a command. Cast your anxieties on him. That's a command. Be sober-minded and watchful. That's a command. And he says, resist the devil. That's a command. And this devil, Satan, wants to devour. Peter's word here he uses actually means to drink down. Ever thought about that? Satan wants to drink you down. He wants to suck all the life out of you so that you tap out. And Peter calls this enemy the adversary. This term has a legal connotation reflecting the Old Testament picture of Satan accusing the saints before the throne of God's justice. Like that in the story of Job when he appears like some heavenly prosecutor. And here's what he wants to do, and this is important regarding suffering and trials. He wants to discredit God's word and destroy God's works. He doesn't care about justice. He wants to discredit God's word and destroy God's works. Think about any trial that you're walking through. They say that people are either coming out of a trial, going into one, or, or in, the, in the middle of one, and so that's the life of a believer. Satan wants to lie to you in a way that makes you doubt all that you know about the truth of God's word. And he makes, makes you want to like doubt the promise of what God said he would do and who he is to the believer. And the milkman, the milkman, not the milkman, the milk can moment for me, although it could be the milkman, catches me in this sometimes. Because I said, often I come to that moment where I'm just scooping milk and like worry enters in and doubt enters in. And I was like, I'm a, I'm a pastor in ministry. We're not supposed to do this, right? And you're like, what if this stuff isn't even real? Like, what if all God says isn't even real? What's the purpose of all this? Like, is God really happy with that? Watching a little boy suffer, watching this change the dynamic of our whole family? What's it like, what's that all about? Susceptible to believe Satan's lie and said, instead of God's word, to forget who God is in those moments and to whine about it in a way, and I can do this, to whine about it in such a way that you can almost hear the cheers of Satan in that moment. Like, yes, yes whine about it. 
be angry and bitter. It's like I have this picture of like that, you know that if you've seen that Grinch, the original, and even the Jim Carrey version, that big smile that grows on the Grinch's face. It's like that's Satan when we're in those moments. Like, yeah, they're, get, they're getting sucked down, tapping out right now, drunk down. This is the same Satan that approached Jesus in temptation in the wilderness, and he tries the same approach, right? And Christ being perfect, perfectly righteous and of clear mind, sober mind, watchful in this battle, combated this enemy with what? The word of God. And then he goes to the cross and defeats this enemy permanently, casting him down forever. I love how theologian Edmund Cloney said, comments on this. He says, he, Satan, may threaten the church from within, masquerading as an angel of light. He may rage from without using the fire and sword of persecuting tyrants. But the Christian knows that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. The danger of the Christian is not that they are helpless before the devil. That's not the danger, he says. He is equipped with the whole armor of God to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The danger of the, to the Christian is that he will fail to resist that he will not watch and pray and use the same weapon Jesus used in the desert, the very word of God. Friends, we are to resist in that way. Peter, in this passage, calls, us, calls on us to do, if you think about this, what he failed to do in the Garden of Gethsemane, to watch and pray. Do you remember that? If you remember that text, he came back and they were sleeping. And he says, you need to watch and pray. Remember, Satan is roaring here. He's tough. But remember, he's a tethered lion. He cannot tempt us beyond what we can endure. God will not allow it. Peter reminds us of this in this piece in verse 9, right? Resist him, firm in your faith. He says, resist him because you can be firm and resolved in this, knowing that other, our, other brothers are suffering around the world in this way. Isn't that strange? that he adds that, like it makes it, it's really strange how that makes it better. Like when we know we're not the only ones. I, I spent time, Grace and I actually, uh, and several others from our, or not several, a few others from our church were spent time in Albania uh, at the end of June, and we went to another disciples church in Tirana to spend time, and they have a whole different world of persecution and suffering over there. Uh, there's, a, there's a very corrupt system of bribery and, and they're mostly first generation Christians and they suffer in different ways and I couldn't help but just like feel at home with that and, and to know that there is brothers and sisters all around the globe that are suffering and humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God because he has purpose in it. That we aren't the only ones and in fact we should expect it, James says, Right? Don't be surprised by it. And the scripture tells us that when we suffer, it identifies us with Christ. Listen to Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his res- resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. 2 Corinthians 1.5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in, and he says, abundance, Paul writes, so also is our comfort abundant through Christ. And so friends, humble yourself and resist the devil. The third one is that we grow through suffering by trusting God's sovereignty, and I trust in this, that he has a plan in all things. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. To who? To God that denotes his sovereignty. It's the perspective that this is not for nothing, that God made Josiah the way that he did the way he wanted. When we learned of Josiah's complications, we actually, uh, if I back up a little bit, my wife and I, um, like I said, we have four kids. He was our fourth. When we learned, um, we learned in a 20-week ultrasound that Josiah was born with club feet, that we could see those in, in utero. And it was kind of a roller coaster because they, um, they found this in the ultrasound. And of course, you know, the hospital uh, they, they call a perinatologist and they call and said, hey, we'd like you to have you come in and sit down with a genetic counselor. And like, I was the one that took the phone call and I answered, oh, like, yeah, that's great. And Carrie's like, who was that? What was that? And I just agreed to this thing I didn't know anything about. They sit us down in there and say, hey, uh, your child has club feet in the ultrasound. We see that. It's usually linked to something fatal. Um, and, and you have the option to abort. And of course, that's the world, the way they say that. And and we, that was never an option for us. And so we're like, all right, God, like that was kind of the beginning of the journey, 20 weeks before he was even born. Well, to make matters more complex, they came back to us and said, hey, we think it's just club feet. Like he's normally healthy, his heart checked out, everything's good. And so what we were planning on was having a healthy boy in June who came four weeks early with club feet, but that's all we knew about. It was later that fall that he started to miss these milestones. And then his back started to curve. And then the surgeries started to come, pile on top of one after another. I have to think God knew the timing of this. He knew the moment of everything and the way that he wanted. It's been a wild ride for 12 years. And honestly, it seems like forever. It shaped our kids. Our other children are far more compassionate. God has a plan in that. It's changed my heart. It's changed our whole church body, in fact. And God says, after you've suffered a little while, I can tell you that, like, again, my job is every night that I'm home, I almost feel guilty when I'm not home that Carrie has to do that, and I almost feel guilty at that misses. Like, 12 years, night after night, it takes about half an hour to an hour to get him ready for bed and just, like, go through all the routine. And like God says, after you've suffered a little while. Like, God, it doesn't feel like a little while, but it's perspective, Right? Because it says that God calls all who believe into eternal glory. That's why Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians 4, right? He's convinced that the weight of what is coming for the church of Jesus Christ can't hold a candle to the sufferings of the world. Our little minuscule problems in this vapor of a life, and God says, this is what I'm bringing to all who place faith in Jesus Christ. Look what's coming. It far outweighs the little sufferings in your world. And of course, in that text in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, it says these troubles are light and momentary, so do not lose heart. And the coolest part about this passage, what Peter says here, he says God does these four things. Look at these words. This God who has dominion, who is sovereign over all creation forever and ever, the one who has the whole world in his hands, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, the one who delights in you, the one who has ordained every day in your life as he wanted it to be. He says for all who place their faith upon Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
Like the one who calls you is faithful, he will do it. God will restore. He will make all things right again. If there's one thing about having a kid like Josiah, it's that you see the brokenness of the fallen earth in his little body. You see the pain of like what's wrong in the world. And I've shared this story before. All of our kids um, have a picture in their room, framed picture in their room of Jesus with a small child. And it struck me years ago and I never had put it together. And our oldest daughter, Michaela, the picture of Jesus, you know, it's like the white, blue-eyed Jesus, like, you know, whether he looks like that or not in the flesh, I don't know. But, you know, the beard, the whole thing, the blue sash, you probably figured that too. Um, but he's there with Michaela and little butterfly and he's, he's sitting on a little park bench and it's just a beautiful picture, the imagery. And then Jeremiah has one, um, just a little boy sitting And then Isabella has one of a little girl. They're just like sitting in the middle of this garden. And then Josiah's picture, and it struck me years ago, is the only picture of our four kids of a child walking with Jesus. And it just makes my heart long for that moment when that little boy just like climbs out of that chair and like takes his first step in eternity. It's remarkable. God will do that. He will restore He will confirm our calling. That confirmation is like that of saying, like, this was all good. This is all right. This is all good stuff. This happened for Peter, right, after Satan sifted him like wheat, right? And that text in Luke is just fascinating because Jesus prays for Peter after he says, Satan's going to sift you like wheat. He's going to drink you down. He's going to make your faith fail. And then he says, if you go back to that text, he says, after you failed, I will restore you. I will confirm you. Like, do we understand that? Jesus takes Peter's greatest moment of weakness and say, even that, even that can't steal away my love for you. And he builds the church. Peter's called the rock, right? He will strengthen. Oh, how we need that church. This noun here appears in the Greek version of Job, and you know what that likens the strength of? Ironic? I don't think so. A lion. The strength of a lion. If you know Narnia series, you know that C.S. Lewis wrote about Aslan, right? The character of Christ as a lion. The risen Christ removes our fear of the lion, Satan, who is tethered, right? And instead gives us the strength and the power of a lion, that which Christ was raised from the dead. That kind of spiritual power. And he says, I'll strengthen you. And then he says, well, establish us on the firmest of foundations, the security of the salvation of our souls in glory for eternity and all that is in the earth will fade away. And look what he says at the end here. On what basis does all of this happen? The true grace of God. That's the fourth point, that we grow through suffering by standing in true grace. Verses 12 through 14, Peter concludes that this is the true grace of God. Declares it, in fact, in verse 12, that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. Grace that is undeserved for sinners and sufferers alike, the hope and glory of the gospel, that God redeems sinners for himself in Christ, that we, having no merit on our own, can be saved through faith by grace alone in Christ alone. And he says, stand firm in that makes me think of one of my favorite passages 
in the scriptures in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Paul is writing here and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into what? Into this grace. Or we could even say true grace there in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into us by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's true grace. That is undeserved. No merit of our own grace that God says, I give to you who place your faith upon Jesus Christ. And these four things I do, and this is what is coming for us, friends. And Peter ends this passage where he began. As he writes, she who is in Babylon is the church there in Rome, as we know. That's what that means, that, that Babylon, they would have likened that to Rome, the church there. And he reminds her that she is what? Chosen. Didn't he begin there? Just as he did in the first verse of his letter to the elect exiles, so does he conclude, to the chosen people of God, my beloved, my chosen ones, appointed unto salvation everything that comes into your life. You can grow together and be sanctified together and live in harmony in the gospel together, greeting one another with the kiss of love. I can tell you, I don't have a ton of nights where I'm filling up milk that I think about the kiss of love. Like, that it's so comforting. But I do have them. Where I think about all of this with my brothers and sisters around the world suffering all kinds of trials in this very, like, limited, short time frame that God has called us to here. And I'm reminded of the beauty and wonder of the gospel, the bond of peace because of Christ. The fiery trial and roar of the enemy cannot overthrow or overpower the peace, the shalom of Christ's salvation. I have to recall this at the window of my suffering, at the nights when I feel like I can't go another round, like our family can't go another round, our marriage can't go another round, like this boy can't go another round. And that's when I have to remember the true grace of God. When I humble myself under the mighty hand of God, when I resist the evil one, when I remember God's sovereign plan and all of that, all the ways in which I have seen him work and trust that he will complete the work that he has started. And the nights I remember that as the word of Christ, as it says in scriptures, dwells in me richly, I, I bring this to mind as what he gave his disciples when he left, right? Peace I live, leave with you, my peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I hope you know this kind of peace this morning. Peace only available in the person of Jesus Christ. Peace with God only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. And peace you can live in all your days because of the promise of Christ's return. 
He will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good and gracious and kind. Just to think about the songs we've declared this morning, is anyone worthy? You are. He is, Christ is worthy to be praised and adored and worshiped as we humble our hearts. Great are you, Lord. And Father, I know that all too well. It is your breath in my lungs as I pour out praise to you. And Father, you know my heart from moment to moment as you know all of our hearts. Praise doesn't always come forth on my lips. Sometimes it's complaint. And I have no doubt there are those sitting here that that have done that this season, this week, maybe even this morning. God, and I pray that you turn their heart towards you. And Father, the goodness of Jesus, oh, the goodness of Jesus, I pray that we'd know that and if there's one here that has never trusted Christ, that they would do it this day. That they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ has died, was buried and rose again, paying the penalty of their sin, Father, at the cross. And Father, raising victoriously over death and dominion forever. Father, help us as we humble ourselves. Help us as we trust your sovereign plan. Help us as we resist resist the enemy and God we praise you now as we sing this last song even together about the true grace of God that you will hold us fast no matter what happens in our life Father Father, the promise for the believer is that you will bring us home safely and so Father we thank you for that we praise you Father you are making all things new and one day there is coming for us an eternal weight of glory that will compare little to what we're walking through now And so God, be praised. We praise you for Christ. We exalt him now. We pray these things in his wonderful, beautiful name. And all God's people said, amen.